1: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch.
2: Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies
1: are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life, to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello
2: and welcome to Rule the World, the Art and Power of Storytelling. My name is Paul Furlong, Creative Director at Opus Media, and I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you know the power of storytelling. And I want you to bring that power to your own writing with Roger Shulman at TheWriterCoach.com. Roger's unique coaching method connects your personal story to whatever you're writing, giving it heart and depth. The result your presentation, website copy, keynote address, or screenplay becomes compelling, entertaining, and persuasive. Roger is the winner of the British Academy Award, and nominee for the Oscar and the Emmy. So go to thewritercoach.com and schedule a free discovery session. Let Roger bring the Hollywood to your writing. Today's guest is Anthony Tasgall, or Taz as he's normally known, and he has 15 years' experience in writing and carrying out courses on the subject of storytelling in business from across the UK to the US and in France. He's an expert in storytelling, incitement, and applying new thinking to understanding consumer behavior and decision-making, and was founding editor of Mintel Inspire, an interactive trends tool. So, Taz, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Paul. Thanks for having
0: me.
2: So I've given you a little bit of an introduction there, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and what it is that you do.
1: Okay, um, I never quite know how to define myself in a few words. I've come up with man of many lanyards um, on the basis that it's actually a reasonably accurate description. Um, So I I started off working in, in, well, actually before I started working, I was a classicist. So um, at some point, probably the next um, half hour or so, I should probably start talking about Romans and Greeks. Um, but I, I love that and I love the stories of, of Homer and Virgin and all those sorts of things. And, and not the guy from The Simpsons or the player from Liverpool, uh, but the original Homer and Virgil. Um, so I loved all that and then found, found myself literally extending into advertising as what's called a planner, a sort of strategic brand sort of consultant and worked with ad agencies and their clients to try and come up with brand communications ideas. And one thing that struck me quite quickly was um, people didn't really communicate very well either when they were actually creating ads for consumers or even internally presenting or doing pitches, It was all very PowerPoint, it was all very leathern, it was all very factual, it was all very information transmission. So it struck me quite early, why is it that our industry, I mean the whole marketing, comms, branding world, how is it that we've lost the universal human art of storytelling? So as I was sort of meandering around the ad industry, finding out the the question was a 40-second TV commercial. I thought, actually, maybe I should try to do something else. So I started doing a bit of training and then effectively moved from full-time planning to a bit of part-time planning and then doing mainly lecturing and training and writing um, on storytelling and something else called behavioural economics, which is some people know is nudge theory, which is all about emotions. So really, it's, it's for me, it's a, it's a tangle, it's a, it's a web of all these different things together about the human desire to tell stories, how we do or don't use it in communication, how we can understand how persuasion works, and wrapping it all in this sort of new theory about how emotions work. So that's, that's pretty much sort of me in a nutshell. So
2: one of the things that you've written about uh, extensively and one of the things you talk about a lot in, uh, in your work is how important it is to restore emotion to the world of business. And I suppose that fits into the behavioural economics that you've just talked about. So why is it important to restore emotion to the world of business?
1: I, um, I do occasionally go off on a bit of a rant about this, and it's, it's in both the books, particularly the first, first book, the storytelling book. I, I sort of label it, or I lump it under a headline or a word called ag Um, I do, I do like my words. So asthmocracy is a sort of semi-created word based on arithmetic. idea of numbers. And what alarms me about the business world, like so many other spheres, is it's become obsessed with, as I say, what I call arithmocracy, this obsession with everything being about numbers, and measurement and prediction and control and ROIs and metrics. And I know I'm a little bit sort of kink and new about this, because that tide is constantly coming in, in the business world, because everything has to be measured and accountable. But I just like to move the pendulum back a bit because I think we, in in this pursuit, in this relentless pursuit of numbers and measurement, and standardisation, I think we've lost an awful lot about what makes human beings interesting and fascinating, and what's makes what makes persuasion fascinating, and that is the fact that we are far more influenced by our emotions than we like to admit. So, with my behavioural economics hat on. Um, I often quote a man called David Eagleman, who wrote um, a book called Incognito, did a TV series for PBS and BBC. Um, And he has this lovely line, he says, we don't think the way we think, we think. Which I I love because it's a beautiful, elegant piece of um, writing. But it's also a quite brilliant insight because we like to think, particularly in the business world, that we, because we're great, serious, important business people, that we do everything very rational, very considered, very thoughtful, sequential way. But all the neuroscience, all of the evidence from behavioral economics, cognitive neuroscience, psychology suggests that's just a myth, that most of the time we don't. And I think if we look at ourselves as human beings, we probably need to be honest and say we do things much more for emotional reasons and unconscious, implicit reasons. Than we like to admit. So for me, this overlap between storytelling and emotion and also meaning and memory, those are, those are areas that I, which I'm personally just fascinated by, but they just bring us back to what we are as human beings and how we need to act as human beings and acknowledge that we act if we're going to try and persuade people to carry out the sort of behavior that we want. So that, that's the sort of area that I like playing around in, really. So
2: how does storytelling influence consumer behavior and decision-making?
1: Um, I'll give you another my I'm good with like t-shirtable slogans. So if anyone out there is listening and they've got like a summer party coming out and they a slogan, uh, massage, not message. Um, that's why I sum up a lot of that thinking. We spend a lot of time in our business um, communicating in what I call a messaging way. And I don't like messaging. For me, messaging is I have something to say to you and I'm going to tell you it whether you like it or not. Um, I often ask them to think, you know, if you're parents, um, what happens if you tell your children what to do? And I shall have a pause here while everyone who's listening thinks, well, yeah, generally they tend to ignore me or do the opposite. And that's what messaging is. You know, you must brush your teeth. You must finish off your vegetables. And by and large, human beings don't respond very well to that, that sort of didactic, hectoring tone. So what I like to think is, is massaging is how do you get people to feel good about themselves how do you get people to feel that you're massaging their sense of self-worth or how do they feel good about the choice that you want them to make and to me storytelling works in a massaging way because you're telling a story you're getting people involved you're getting them emotionally um connected with what you're trying to do and that all happens at what's called a system one level like a sort of unconscious level and because we're all born and grow up to understand the world through stories We love that, we don't mind being told stories, rather than being instructed what to do. So to me, it's about trying to work out the sort of messages or information or or desired responses you want from people. But using storytelling as a vehicle to allow people to actually feel that they're enjoying part of making that decision, rather than, as I say, being instructed because it's good for them.
2: So when you start to put that story together, to get mm-hmm. to try and influence people to your way of thinking or to get people to do what it is you want them to do. Yeah. What's, your, what's your approach to constructing that story?
1: Well, first, first thing I want to say, as a born, in, in, born and bred, died in the wool marketing person, is it depends on your target audience, uh, what you're trying to achieve. Um, having said that, I think there are certain storytelling tricks and techniques that I always recommend. So, one of them is actually to start with the sorts of emotions you want to elicit. So, rather than just thinking about what the message or the benefit of a proposition is, what are the emotions? And when I do my training days, I'll talk about what are generally considered to be the six universal human emotions happiness, sadness, fear, anger, surprise, disgust. Are you trying to elicit one of those? And if you're not, maybe that would be an interesting way of, of actually addressing what you're trying to do through the lens of one of those universal emotions. Because we know that we are primed as human beings to respond to those sort of emotional triggers. There are several other you know, tricks and tips that I talk about. So the importance of, of how you start. Again, too often when we're trying to use advertising, when we're doing a conference presentation or a talk, we start off by doing something very boring and very basic. We talk about who we are, we talk about how wonderful we are, we thank the people for inviting us. My argument is very simple. In every form of storytelling, whether it's written or verbal or whatever, how you start, you should always start with something surprising, something memorable, something emotional. Because once the brain, and all, all, all of what I talk about is based on our understanding of what the brain wants. If you start off with something which creates an emotional response, the brain is already hooked. And in the first book, which is subtitled The Golden Thread, um, I talk about the Golden Thread as a as a technique, and it goes back to Ctesias and the Minotaur. Have I got time to tell the Ctesias and the Minotaur story? Yeah, of course. Okay, so for the non-classicists out there, um, this this goes back to um, a time in, in ancient Crete and ancient Greece where the king of Crete, Minos, had defeated the Athenians. And as a result of that victory, he said to the Athenians, you'll bring over seven young men and seven, seven young women in a ship. You'll bring them To Crete, and they will be taken to the center of the labyrinth, which was a fiendish maze devised by Daedalus, who was the father of Icarus, who flew too near the sun with his wax wings. And inside the the labyrinth was King Minos' son, the Minotaur, half man, half bull. The Minos said, All these Athenian men and women that will be brought to the center of the labyrinth, they will be guided into the center, and there they will meet the Minotaur, and the Minotaur will dismember them and kill them and eat them. And this went on for a number of years until, as I have to say, there arose a hero in Athens called Theseus, and he said, no longer will I put up with the flower of Athenian youth being slaughtered. So I will go over on the ship, I will meet King Minos, I will go to the labyrinth and I will slay, um, because that's what they did in those days, I will slay the Minotaur. So he goes over and he meets King Minos and he announces I'm going to It'd kill your son, the Minotaur, and I need to free the Athenians. But in the courts of King Minos, he meets King Minos's daughter, Ariadne. And Ariadne falls in love with Theseus, and Theseus with Ariadne. So Ariadne says to him, Theseus, you must be aware that no one has ever managed to find their way into the centre of the labyrinth. It's such a complicated maze. And even if they did find their way, and they'd never managed to kill the Minotaur. And even if they did manage to kill the Minotaur, they'd never find their way out again. So according to different authorities, um, she gives him a ball of thread. Some people say it was a golden ball. And she says, take this ball of thread and as you're at the outside of the labyrinth, unravel it as you find your way in. So by the time you've got to the centre of the labyrinth and hopefully you've killed the, the Minotaur, you will have a way of tracing your way back out. And I've always loved that story. I must have heard it 30, 40 years ago. And it's used in different ways, psychotherapists use it, but for me it's about coherence. It's about having a structure, it's about having a skeleton or a framework. And everyone who talks about storytelling usually talks about that in some way. But for me, I always talk about you need a thread. Whenever you're telling a story, again, if you're narrating a story, if you're talking to your children, if you're doing a presentation, even if you're doing a book, and I I did it with both of mine, You need to have a thread which is visible, tight, and which allows you to show your audience where you're going so they always know where you are, but also allows you to know what to put in and, more importantly, what to take out. And for me, that's one of the key things that just operates across pretty much everything, all the way from like sending a humble email all the way to doing like a one-hour presentation. So I can't remember what the question was, but I've given you some sort of answer to it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's that's a great answer so my question was explain your approach to storytelling and i think i think you've answered it very thoroughly how do you know what the thread is how do you find your thread
1: that's a very good question and again when i work with clients so i do workshops um i will say to them there is no such thing as one thread there are always going to be multiple threads and because i um one of the things that i think you mentioned in the intro i used to help run a cinema in North London called The Phoenix, the oldest continued running cinema in the country. And um, I've always been a huge film fan. So if you look at, uh, for example, Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, Richard Curtis wrote 14 versions of the screenplay. And you can look at the history of, of creative people. Very few of them come up with a final screenplay, the final piece of work the first time. So I always emphasize to people You're not gonna get it the first time. Work with other people, come back, think about it. But a thread is a frame really. And one of the the examples I'll give, and I know you've had people on from people like Pixar and stuff, um, creative people, um, uh, particularly artists, film directors, will use a storyboard. So for me, I will encourage people who are writing speeches or documents to actually storyboard it out with Post-its and it will create your thread and as you do that you say actually no maybe that isn't the first thing maybe that goes there and you move things around and then once you've got a thread which you think is coherent and which achieves what you want to do put it aside go back show it to some other people but be aware that you may have three four or five different threads in the same way that ad agencies will often have three or four or five different ideas for a pitch and then you just need to come to a a decision yourself what you think is the most individual the most distinctive the most motivating one but as we all be thinking it's about understanding that there's no one right answer
2: and obviously this helps us to be creative in our storytelling finding the, the thread yep. or multiple threads yep. you talk in your book uh, particularly in the in your first book about how we need to be more creative in our general communication how yep. h- how can we be more creative as well as finding the thread in our stories
1: I think that's a, I think that's a bigger industry-wide or organizational issue. Um, I'm, it, I'm pondering writing the next book also about playfulness, and that's one of the answers. <laughs> I think again, as going back to what I was saying about the arithmetic and this obsession with what I sometimes call an arid reductionism. Unfortunately, there are lots of departments, lots of companies where everything is being reduced. We need to like have an average answer, or an average consumer, or an average message. And for me, averaging is the worst possible way of encouraging creativity. Um, I sometimes want to say you don't get much meaning from a mean. Um, and too often, and it's one of my hats. For example, as a planner, is research. I spend a lot of my time understanding data, market research, and, de- and deriving insight from it. But too often, the people who commission research or examine research, again, are looking for averages. They're looking for means. They're looking for something simple. And often human beings, because we are sort of messy and chaotic and unpredictable and emotional, that's not the way to get creativity. The way to get creativity is to look at emotions, to look at idiosyncratic aspects of human behaviour, to try and find things that look unexpected and surprising and meaningful. And for me, those are the best ways of getting creativity. By doing lots of quantitative research, putting things into numbers, coming up with metrics, is the enemy of creativity. And I know why companies are doing it, because everything has to be measured and has to be accountable. But I think we need to sort of divide the sort of proving and accountability side of things from the generation of ideas and innovation and insight end of things. And I think we need to move as many people as we can down that end, the creative end, even the bean counters, even the people with numbers, um, and get them to understand that you can't prove and measure everything. And if you do, that's going to get in the way of coming up with things that are genuinely interesting and creative. So that that's one sort of organisational, cultural answer to your question. I could probably give you a couple of others as well. I
2: might, I might come back to that in a second, but you've, you've hit on a very interesting point. We've been a creative species for thousands of years, and we yeah. now live in this yeah. day we now live in this data driven world facebook advertising sky ad smart where they can tell us about the the likes and dislikes of our audience and it's very powerful yeah. but where's the line where do we, where's the where's the right point between creativity and data because we don't want to live in a completely data driven world and we maybe total yeah. creativity isn't right so where where's that line
1: no absolutely um, i think there's There's a number of ways of looking at this. One is efficiency and effectiveness. So I think a lot of data is about efficiency. A lot of data is understanding who our audience is, understanding perhaps their their psychographic, attitudinal, behavioural characteristics. But for me, creativity is the effectiveness side of it, which is how do you take all that data? How do you turn that into insights, which you can then go to your agency or your creative team or whoever and say okay now design now give me an idea give me a website give me a brand logo a name which allows me to turn all of that data big data algorithm stuff into something which is going to be genuinely um genuinely attitudinally behaviorally effective i i I don't want to say i'm an enemy of data that would be nonsense i'm an enemy of using data at the expense of everything else Data, however, is brilliant, and big data is brilliant, and our brains are brilliant at generating insights and patterns which allow creative people to come up with new ideas and new solutions. The problem I see, as I say sometimes, is where the people who are in control of the data think that the data is simply going to give them all the answers in itself. It's not. It's it's hopefully going to open up some new doors and new ideas, but you then need, of strategic planners and creative people to say, okay, now what do we do with those insights? Um, And in the second book, which is being spiritual, which is all about insights, I talk about how the fact that actually a lot of people don't get what insight is. Generally with insight, you have to allow your brain to meander. You have to let your unconscious play around with things which are unexpected. So just putting data together is probably not going to give you an insight. Giving it to people who are creative And then saying, okay, now let's play around, let's leave it and come back to it. Let's mix up some different things together. That's the way you get genuine insight. So for me, that's the way of getting the balance. It's not perfectly right, but at least creating some sort of equilibrium between the two of them.
2: Excellent. And so going back to creativity, tell me more about that. Tell me more about how we can become more creative.
1: Um... Where do I start? I think, as I said, I think to me there are a number of components. I think storytelling and emotion is one of them. I think allowing ourselves in companies, so I do work now within within companies to say, let's look at storytelling, let's look at behavioral economics and emotion, and let's be, be much more open about how emotion works. So not just in terms of our communication, but in terms of how we talk to each other internally, how we have meetings, how we talk to each other, what we do before and after work. All those ways, I think, are a, a ways of creating companies and organisations and cultures, which are more likely to be to become creative. Another thing, as I hinted at a minute ago, is this idea of playfulness. I think there's a terrible tendency, now because I lecture at universities, and also I've got um, grown-up children now, uh, entering the business world, um, I notice with alarm how, lots of people who are students or young people and who are really fun creative imaginative people come into the business world and have all of that bled out of them and I've, i found that really depressing um only the other day a couple of weeks ago i was lecturing at bucks uni um, on our advertising course and there's some fantastic creative people there and one of them sent me an email the other day saying they've just had an intern, uh, in, uh, um, internship. And they were just treated like cogs in a wheel, even though they're creative people. And they should be, at their age and with the sort of work they're doing, having fun, exploring different ideas, but they were sort of forced to fit into a sort of template. I think one of the things we really have to do in the business world is understand that sometimes serious, being serious and grown up and rational, the things that I mentioned before about the opposite of emotion. They are very often the, the opposite of creativity. And I, I'd really like to see from when people come into a company that they're encouraged to sort of think playfully, to generate ideas. I think it's a number of companies have set up, I think Google was one of them. You get a certain amount of time, I think half a day a week or a day a week, where you're allowed to do anything you want. As a way of saying to people, you don't spend all your time just thinking about search engines or we don't spend all your time just thinking about cars or yogurts because after a while you you can't be creative about that Um, but allowing people to sort of read a book or see a play or go to a movie which is deliberately designed to get their unconscious system one their creative brain just simmering with new ideas and that whole complex of story emotion and playfulness and allowing people to fail which is another thing which is in the second book Um, this, the word in English, error, we always, we think it's a, you know, we, we punish people for making mistakes, but the Latin, the origin of the word error as in erratic or aberrant behavior means to wander. It doesn't mean to be wrong. It means to wander. So I often say to people, when you're making an error, you're not making a mistake, you're wandering. And again, I think it's that sort of climate that I'm, I talk to companies about and say, that's what you need to encourage. If you say, do this or you're wrong, and even if what you've done is wrong, we all all great thinkers and scientists say the only way the human brain learns is from failure. So I think we've got to encourage that sort of climate, sort of changing climate, which I know isn't easy, particularly in very large or multinational companies. But again, it goes back to sort of understanding this system, is era democracy that we're in and saying, Let's not be completely bound up in it.
2: And so, I suppose that wandering, that error, is a is a great way for us to be able to practice our storytelling.
1: Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, And I think in terms of how I work with different companies on the storytelling, one of the things that I I like to get them to do is to say: too often when I look at company websites, um, they're often normally they're designed by a group of people that I don't want to be too rude about. Um, Often websites are designed by IT people. And IT people in my world, like engineers or accountants, are very good at certain things, but they're not perhaps so good at other things. And what links all those different groups in my my mind is a very sort of linear, rational approach to things. So often, I look at company websites. I'm doing some stuff with a client at the moment, actually. and you can see the way that the sort of drop-down menus lead. And every drop-down box has lots and lots of more pages, and each page is absolutely full of copy. So one of the things I talk about in both days, storytelling and behavioral economics, is what's called chunking, which is a principle which is a bit of overlap between a number of those areas. And chunking is simple. Chunking just says that our brain doesn't like undifferentiated masses of stuff, to use a technical term. Uh, one of the words I don't like, by the way, is content. I always say to people, stop using the word content and just replace it with the word stuff, and then you'll see exactly what content is. So, thing about chunkies, is break big things into small things, make them smaller, easier to digest, bigger typeface, more interesting, more white space. So, for me, that's that's one principle. But going back to the storytelling, it's Often I get, I work with companies in the consultancy field and they talk about, they talk about their stories, but often they're not, they're just case, case histories. And case histories usually involve, you know, here's a client who needed something done, we did it, we were brilliant, and here's lots of facts. And that's not a story, that's just a case history. So for me, how you translate that into a story is, is what's more, is more interesting. So one of the things I talk about, one of the exercises I do, is what I call hero, villain, conflict and quest. Which is a sort of classic storytelling framework so in every story you have a hero you have a villain and it can be a person or it can be an idea or a concept or a group of people all stories involve a quest a quest to do something that is universal and emotional so to slay a dragon to leave the forest to uncover a truth to find out who you are um And you need a conflict because their brain loves getting involved in a conflict between, you know, A and B or between five men standing on a platform trying to be the next prime minister, for example. Um, So what you need to do is, is turn your website, turn your case histories, turn your own brand promise or benefit into something that is closer to what I'm talking about there. Creating characters, creating conflicts so that people can immerse themselves in what feels like a story, again, rather than effectively looking at your website and having to read a catalog. So this idea of we're in the storytelling business, not in the catalog business, is something I often have to say to people. So again, those are some ways of just bringing storytelling into the sort of practical world that that we live in.
2: And so that, when it's on a website, when it's um, in a book like the books that you've written, how does that vary in its storytelling from when you're on stage delivering a, a keynote and you're d- delivering verbal story?
1: I think, I mean, a lot of the principles are the same. About having a thread, about how you start, about maybe giving your talk or your, your presentation or your book a headline, not a description, a headline in a way that you know, advertising creative people or sub-editors in, in newspapers will write a headline which is provocative, which is short, which is surprising. So a lot of those principles are the same. I think there are obviously some differences because when you're doing something face-to-face, the whole non-verbal thing comes to to the fore. So you have people um, like I am now, you can look into people's eyes, you can get that sort of reaction that actors and comedians get when they're on stage. Um, You can use all sorts of other media. you can use your hands, you can pause, all those sorts of things. When you're writing, other things have to be more effective. So again, what I always say is a couple of things I've mentioned. Give it a headline, whatever you're writing. And this, for example, works really well with emails. The reason why 90% of us ignore 90% of our emails is they just look boring. The headline, the subject line, isn't something that intrigues us, isn't something that is going to get our brain hooked. So when we're when we're deprived of the sort of face-to-face aspect, how you write has to enter, has to sort of really rely on those things that I've talked about. A good headline, a good start, something that is a thread that you can again, sometimes call the elevator lift, you can probably pray see in two or three sentences. And then being absolutely rigid about that. One of the other things I'll just say, which is um Uh, I was talking, I did a mini-workshop yet this this morning. Um, I have, in terms of doing keynotes and talks, or even meetings, actually, um, I have a rule which I just call the two-thirds rule, which I've developed over, uh, well, I haven't developed it over years because it's very simple, but I've just come to realise it's worth saying. If you've got a meeting tomorrow and someone said, right, you have a, a, a presentation to do, and it's an hour, so let's say you've got from 10 to 11 o'clock tomorrow, or let's say you've got to do a keynote or a speech at the sales conference and it's half an hour. Here's my rule. Under no circumstances do you write a presentation or a talk that is an hour or that is half an hour. The two thirds rule, you write 40 minutes if it's an hour, you write 20 minutes if it's 30, you write 10 minutes if it's fine. Apart from all the other things, like the meeting will start late, the most important person will leave early, there'll be questions, people will be on their phones. By giving yourself 40 minutes to to write for, rather than an hour, it forces your brain to come up with the golden thread. It forces your brain to take out the surplus, to take out what someone once called, it's a great word, exformation. There's a Danish writer called Tor Noritrand, as he said, we worry too much about information. The stuff we put in and not enough of that exclamation, the stuff we have to take out. So I, always do, I do it myself and I recommend it as a way of forcing your brain to say, don't do an hour. If you do an hour, you'll put all the stuff in that you don't need to, you'll ramble. I ramble, everyone rambles. But if you say you're going to write 40 minutes, you give yourself a little bit of rambling leg room, but more importantly, you force yourself to keep to the absolute tightest thread that you can. And that, over the years, I've actually found quite a reasonable piece of advice to follow myself as not just giving it to anyone else.
2: And you talked earlier about starting with who your target audience are. So that's obviously key to telling a story. When you're telling a verbal story, you've talked about those cues. How important do the audience become to the story?
1: Uh, I absolutely agree with where you're going with this. Um, One of the things I found over doing doing many, many years of talking and lecturing, and also the odd bit of <laughs> comedy and stand-up and stuff, is it's all, about, it's all about the interaction. And I've read a lot about comedians and how they talk about that sort of aspect of it. And that sort of flow, that sort of responding to the audience, I think is really important. And one of the things, again, I will always emphasize to people is, if you feel confident about that, and you're good enough at it to read the audience, it's always worth seeing what you've said and seeing how people have responded to it and maybe asking them, maybe prompting them saying, okay, sorry, do you, is, are, any, are any comments on that? Anyone want to provoke, is that provoked any thoughts? And wherever I can, I'll try not to just talk myself or lecture, even at a, a, a sort of conference. So I'll try and actually throw questions at the audience or actually sometimes start with a question. Um, so, for example, I'm doing a thing in Reading tomorrow with basically a group of chief financial officers, which is not my natural habitat. So I'm going to do one of my usual things about saying that numbers numbers, but stories us. So I'm probably going to start off by saying hello, and Taz. Um, how many of you spend most of your time with numbers? And then see what happens. How many of you probably think you spend too much time with numbers? And I'm hoping that that will get them sort of warmed up for where I'm going. The fact is that I'm going to recognise their world, which is one of spreadsheets. But I want them to realise that maybe life is not reducible to a spreadsheet. And that's going to be what I'm talking about for sort of 20 minutes. And I think I I find that sometimes a much much more useful way of getting an audience on your side or responding, rather than just launching in and telling them what you're going to tell them for 20 minutes. Um, And I think it's, it's, again, it's a basic storytelling or rhetoric trick, which is often asking questions is a much better technique than just making assertions. So often when I'm talking to people about writing a headline for a document or a title, I'll say, have you considered asking a question or making it a question? Because the human brain is such that if you ask it a question, it just wants to give an answer, which is a fantastic response. Rather than just giving an assertion and the brain goes, yeah, or the brain actually wants to fight with it. Asking a question is quite a subtle, quite a subtle way of, as I say, getting people to sort of play with what you want them to play with.
2: And as you say, that's a great way of grabbing attention. Do you then throw questions into the middle of the stories to hold attention?
1: Um, again, it will depend very much sir, on, on, on what I'm doing. I, I, I was talking at a market Insights forum in London last week, um, and there was one, there was one guy in the audience who I think was like designated heckler but in a very constructive way. And it was great because it was quite an informal sort of thing. And I'd, I'd opened the, the... And so after about 10 or 15 minutes, it became... It turned into a sort of Q&A, which was fine because I'd allowed that, you know, I'd allowed that time. And he triggered off some really good questions. And a couple of things I said, look, don't, I've got that chance coming in two or three minutes. Um, and I think sometimes it, it, it turns it more into that sort of... Um, audience interaction rather than a lecture. And again, one of the things that I've learned from, from lecturing and having been subjected to lectures uh, as a student is, again, too often lecturing is very, very parent-child. It's very didactic. You know, I'm teaching you this is what a brain looks like. And, and my experience at all of this as a, as, a, as a lecturer, as a trainer and as a parent, I don't think that's a very effective way um, of getting people to learn or to understand what you're saying. So if, if it takes off in a certain direction, um, I remember I did a big thing in, in Australia a couple of years ago at one of their conferences. There was about 200 people. Um, and i threw thrown in a sort of and joke about Aussies and Brits. And it, th- so I threw in a couple of other things as well, which were in that sort of area. And then somebody mentioned something in the audience, and it, it turned into a bit of a banter. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And I think as long as it doesn't deflect you completely off your thread, and as long as you don't think you're ready to use um, I think if you can control that, um, it, people just feel a little bit more like they're not just, as I say, passive. It becomes much more of a sort of active and interactive thing. So, again, I, yeah, I think if you're, if you're happy with that and your audience is, is going with it, yeah, run with it.
2: Brilliant. Now, a phrase that you've used a few times as we've been talking is behavioural economics. And you yeah. touched a little bit at the beginning about uh, with a, a definition of what that meant. Do you think you could expand on that ever so slightly just to fill in the gaps around what you've talked about?
1: Uh, it could take about three hours, but
2: yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe in uh, a little less time than that.
1: Right. will Now, uh, behavioural economics has become a really big topic. And it's loosely to do with the idea of... Influencing people by addressing emotions and addressing what is effectively making our decisions happen at an unconscious level. So people like Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, um, Thaylon Sunstein, who wrote Nudge, Dan Ariely, all these
0: people. Um, This is no longer a fringe thing, by the way, because Kahneman became the first psychologist to win the Nobel Prize for economics and Thaler won it himself a couple of years ago. And what they're doing is they're understanding the way that the brain works they're understanding how decisions happen so really what behavioral economics says is that the, the myth that we we sort of created that human beings make decisions very consciously and rationally in a very sort of sequential way is is precisely that it's a myth so what we have to do is understand that the real triggers most of the time lie within what's called system one which is the unconscious the implicit and it's there's an awful lot of science in there and we haven't got time to go through all of that. But I, I find there are a number of areas that I find interesting. One is, how do you address emotions? So rather than burying them or ignoring them, which a lot of brands and products do, you have to make them at the front of what you're doing. Secondly, the fact that a lot of what we think are decisions going on in here, in our head, actually happen around us. So because we're a social species, we like to think we do things individually, but Again, anyone listening, think about how many decisions you actually make because somebody other than you makes that decision. Someone you respect or someone you emulate or someone you want to be like. We are herd animals. An awful lot of what we do is effectively fashion based. Thirdly, a lot of what we do isn't decided when we think it's decided. It's decided by the context that we're in. So we make a lot of decisions depending on whether we're a father, whether we're on our own, whether we're with our mates whether we're at work, we don't always have exactly the same approach to decision-making. We're influenced by the context and the environment. But also it says that a huge amount of decisions we make are automatic. So a lot of the time we think we know why we're making decisions, but they're just repeated decisions. The word, the technical word in the literature is heuristics from the same word as Eureka, that Archimedes said in the bath, I found it. So because our brain is, so energy-efficient and energy-dependent, it hasn't got the energy to make every single decision afresh. It's much easier to say, you know, I did that last time, and by and large, it was good enough. So a lot of the decisions we make, it's not through loyalty, it's through apathy. So, again, all those sorts of insights and thoughts, there are different ways of applying them across all you know, aspects, and as I said, we haven't got the three hours. But there's a whole lot of insights and tricks in there, which I find really fascinating. And I work with clients to apply them to their, to their brands or the communication.
2: And so storytelling is one of the major ways to be able to affect people on a, a behavioral economic level.
0: Yeah, I think for me, they, they sort of operate in different spheres. But as I said, for me, there's emotion, there's story, there's meaning, and there's memory. And for me, that's at the heart of, of how human beings think and behave. And therefore, that's the best chance we have of applying all of those things. How do we use emotion? How do we create memories? Excuse me. How do we tell stories? And how do we make it meaningful? So rather than talking about products and messages and propositions, how is it, how is it a story? How is it meaningful? How is it using emotion? All those, as I say, those three things for me, they're all part of the same sort of family.
2: So I'd love to ask you a couple of, uh, of quick fire questions, if you don't mind, Taz. Of
0: course, yeah.
2: So who do you think of when you hear the word story and why?
0: Um, I'm going to give you one answer because I was just reading. This is how the brain works. So what I've literally just been reading about is uh, the Iliad. Um, So for non-classicists out there, you can just, I don't know, uh, watch the cricket for a couple of minutes. Um, As I said, I'm a classicist and I've been reading lots of novels recently, lots of books which are retellings of Greek classics. So uh, Camilla Shamsie wrote a book called Home Fire, which is about Antigone. I've just read a book by Pat Barker called The Silence of the Girls, which is a retelling of the Iliad. Um, Circe by Madeline Miller. What I find fascinating is that stories that are effectively 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old, which go back to Homer and Troy or the, the, the Odyssey, we're still telling them now. We're still telling them now, and, and modern writers and novelists are still finding ways of retelling them. And screenplay writers, you know, Game of Thrones is based, which I loved until most of the end of the last series. You know, a lot of that is George R. R. Martin understanding Greek history, Roman history, Norse mythology, uh, English and French history. But there are ways of retelling those stories in a modern way. And I find that's what I find fascinating about story that it's, however much we think we have PowerPoint or Facebook or Twitter, Those stories just seem to touch us even now, even when they're put in different forms and different ways. And
2: can you recommend any good books or websites, blogs, podcasts, anything like that about storytelling that we could read to put into practice when it comes to our storytelling?
0: Um, I think a lot of the storytelling um, stuff that I see, I'm going to give you a slightly evasive answer actually. Um, One of the reasons that I I got interested in it was that I thought a lot of the stuff on storytelling – was written either by sort of Hollywood screenwriters like Robert McKee. And I would recommend you read anything by Robert McKee about the art of screenwriting. Um, A book, a couple of books I would definitely recommend are John York's book Into the Woods. And he's a BBC writer, producer. I think he's still on EastEnders. He was on it a while ago. He went back. Um, And he's written, I think, one of the best books about the art and structure of storytelling. And it's beautifully written, and it's just—it's full of every sort of bit of advice you could want. Um, There are one or two other classic books of storytelling. A lot of the storytelling stuff I see, I I find a little bit banal, a little bit obvious, a little bit, you know, it's got to be like this. But I would definitely recommend, um, as I say, the John York book, Into the Woods. That's, for me, the, the best book out there.
2: And finally, where can we find out more about you? Where can we buy your books? And where are you online?
0: Yeah, um... Online, my my, uh, my main website is a work uh, a work in progress at the moment. So um, if you look up Anthony Tazgill or Taz Tasgall, I'm on LinkedIn. I think it's Taz T A S Um The books are on Amazon. The Storytelling Book and the Inspiratorium. Just look up; uh, they're on Amazon. Um, I think the books are still in some uh, branches of Smiths and Foils. Um, and yeah, I've written various articles articles and other bits and pieces just look me up on you know your usual friendly search engine um, and you'll get to me eventually
2: taz it's been brilliant talking to you today really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us and uh, i hope we can do this again sometime soon
0: great thanks for having me paul
2: thank you very much thank you
0: for joining us for this episode of all the world Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time.